This is the East Traumacast. Traumacast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of TraumaCast. This is Kevin Pei, your TraumaCast moderator, and along with me, uh, we have both of our other co-moderators, Matt Martin and Dave Morris. How's it going, guys? Hey, great. Thanks, Kevin. Looking forward to this. Yeah, this should be great. Thanks a lot. Uh, so today's topic is uh, modern management of ARDS and the rescue maneuvers for hypoxic respiratory failure. And we are privileged to have two experts in the field with us, uh, Drs. Drs. Carlos Brown and uh, Lou Kaplan. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for joining us. Thank, thank you. Kevin. Uh, so I want to just briefly introduce the speakers, and then we'll get right into the topic. Dr. Carlos Brown is Chief of Trauma at the University Medical Center, uh, Brackenridge, and Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Texas at Austin of the Dell Medical School. And Dr. Lewis Kaplan is Chief of Surgery at the Philadelphia VA and Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. So, gentlemen, I think let's define what ARDS is, and I know there there may be some new definitions and um, uh, so maybe, Carlos, if you can start just with a description of what, what uh, ARDS is. Yeah, you know, I think some of the, over time, there's been a lot of uh, definitions used, you know, um, American, I mean, the European consensus back in 94 and then some other ones. But I think probably right now the most recent definition that most people are working off of is the Berlin definition from 2012. Um, and it, it sort of breaks it down a little bit differently than others have. You know, it's it's... Onset has got to be relatively acute, um, uh, you know, within a week or so. The risk factors aren't necessarily required. You don't have to have specific risk, risk factors in order to um, be diagnosed with ARDS. But the main thing the Berlin classification did differently was classify ARDS into mild, moderate, and severe and get rid of the term acute lung injury. So a mild ARDS is going to be a PaO2 to FiO2 ratio or PDEF ratio of less than 300, uh, moderate less than 200, and severe less than 100. Um, in addition, it sort of refined the chest X-ray findings requiring um, bilateral infiltrates uh, on the uh, chest X-ray um, or chest CT. And then, you know, I think ruling out heart failure as a source of that uh, pulmonary edema previously was based on wedge pressure findings, and we just don't use pulmonary catheters anymore. And so the new Berlin classification is left ventricular insufficiency that you diagnose either clinically or by echocardiogram rather than requiring a wedge pressure to rule that out. Do you really believe that definition? Uh, I like it. And I guess, yeah, like I guess it? I do believe it. I like it. I mean, it, it, to me, it's much more objective than the previous definitions. I mean, the, the European consensus one was the most commonly used, but a lot of it is arbitrary. I mean, basically, you have hypoxia with chest X-ray infiltrate that aren't from left-hearted left-sided heart failure. So I, so I have a problem with the entire definition. You really laid it out very nicely. It, you went through it in all of its uh, different pieces and updated what the Berlin definition did for it. But the problem I have is that when I get a patient that has one of the flavors of ARDS and I do something with the ventilator mode, 
and all of a sudden, they're well oxidated. The PF ratio is completely different. And now they don't fit that anymore. So did their pathophysiology change? Is the definition wrong? What do we do with that patient? So the fact that the definition can be made to go away based upon what ventilator mode I use for pulmonary recruitment, if you do that, makes me a little bit hesitant to really like it. I understand Maybe you were ventilating them incorrectly to begin with, and then you just corrected across that. Different now platforms, you but, you know, I have problems with it. Yeah, the, I think having problem with it is okay and challenging is okay, but we need to all be on the same page. So when you and I talk about a patient on the phone or at a conference or on a video chat or like this, for example, we need to, we need to have some common language so we can say, okay, to you, a PDF ratio of is 100, and to me, it's 100. Regardless of the definition, we both agree that that's hypoxia. So we can have dialogue, educational conferences, and do research with a readily accepted definition. So, Lou, Lou I, I actually like your point. So, you know, you get a patient who had a bad mucus plug, and they meet ARDS, and then you clear it, and they're fine. So, so would you be happy if they just added a, you know, a cannot be transient hypoxia or, or transiently meet the PDF or add some time factor? Yeah, I, I think rather than time factor or transience, it's that the characteristics are resistant to mode of ventilation manipulation or other therapeutic intervention. So the perfect example is the patient that you get from the MICU that has uh, pneumonia and then has some intra-abdominal catastrophe, and they're ventilated on whatever strategy it is, and you take them to the OR, you fix what's going on in their belly, and you put them on a different mode. And their lungs look completely different on chest X-ray. Their PF ratio is different. They're on a much lower FiO2. They may even be on uh, uh, more PEEP or less PEEP, depending upon what you do. But then I don't think they have the same diagnosis. The pathophysiology, if it is what it is, should remain constant so that if you change some aspect, uh, it shouldn't change the underlying event. And, and for many of these patients, it feels like it really does. So, gentlemen, I have, a, I have another question about this PF ratio definition, which is, um, is a PF ratio of 200 on somebody who's on a PEEP of 20 the same uh, class? Should that be the same classification as somebody with a PF of 200 on a PEEP of 5? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, obviously, yeah, no, I don't think those are the same patient. By the by, the definitions, any of the definitions, the, I mean, the original definition by Murray way back when had had criteria based on, on PEEP. Um, but th the current one is just PEEP greater than 5. But I agree with you, um, there's a difference between a patient on PEEP of 5 or PEEP of 20. I agree with you completely. And they don't, they, they're not going to be, you're not going to have enough granular information from the current definitions to distinguish those two. So this is great. So I can uh, we can't even um, agree on the definition. So I think this is going to be a really interesting uh, uh, trauma cast. But let me um, let me move on and, and pose a, a clinical scenario, and then maybe Lou, you take the first shot at what you would do in this situation, and then Carlos uh, maybe to follow. So let's say you have a 60 year old man who just had a perforated diverticulitis. You did the uh, uh, salvage operation. You're in the ICU. Uh, the patient's hy um, hypoxic. PEEP is going up, you're now at a PEEP of 10, FiO2 80%, and the PF ratio is, say, 150. So, Lou, what would you do? What, what, are, what are you thinking? What are your next maneuvers? So, for the, the purposes of the, the trauma cast, we're going, I'm going to assume that I'm not dealing with 
an abdominal compartment syndrome, and I'm not dealing with an unrecognized hemonumothorax or, or something along those lines. If we just think about this from the pulmonary perspective, that patient is an AC volume cycle PEEP managed failure for me because now they're on a lot of F, a lot of O2. And so I don't really care what the PF ratio happens to be at that point in time. They're on more O2 than what I'd like them to be, and I have a problem. So for me, uh, I will not commonly embrace the ventilate the available lung motif. I will instead try to recruit that lung. So uh, I think we often conflate the standard of care, which is use lung protective ventilation and don't create ventilator-induced lung injury with using a specific mode to meet that standard. So I would put that patient on APRV. I'd absolutely try and recruit that lung. I'd absolutely try and augment his venous return, improve cardiac output, improve O2 onloading and CO2 offloading all at the same time while regaining pulmonary parenchyma to participate in all of those events. So that's Look, that would be my approach for that person. Could you could you uh, just describe what APRV is for the audience members who may not be familiar with that mode? Sure. It, it really is modified CPAP. We're all comfortable putting someone on a CPAP of 5 or 10 because you can get some uh, uh, support to get gas in, but it's not really an untoward barrier against getting gas out. Well, if you make the CPAP 30, getting gas in is great because it is now a constant pressure variable flow mode. Getting gas out, though, is well-nigh impossible. So APRV just takes that very high-level CPAP and introduces a brief pause where that constant pressure goes away. There is no flow provided by the machine. The patient is allowed to passively exhale, but it happens very actively because of your thoracic cage that's been recruited and your lung that's been well recruited, so you have elastic recoil. And before, you get a lot of that gas out, so these uh, release times, these short periods of no high pressure are commonly less than a second. The flow and the pressure comes back on. So it is a tremendous recruitment mode, and that is common for constant pressure variable flow approaches. It is very different than traditional cyclic ventilation. The patient looks a little bit different, but this mode is very highly associated with improved cardiac output, reduced sedative needs, and even in a number of investigations, improved end-organ blood flow, particularly to the kidneys. All right, great. How about you, Carlos? How would you deal with that? Uh, and a couple comments and questions uh, to Lou before I go how I would approach this patient. One is, the, you know, the, there, there's no one mode that's better than any other mode for improving or improving outcomes in ARDS. You know, any, any, a lot of the interventions we do will improve oxygenation. Very few of them will actually improve mortality. And I don't think it's the switching to APRV that is the benefit that you're describing. I think it's my question would for you would be what is the invert? What is the IDE ratio before APRV and then after APRV? Because what I think what you're really doing is inverse ratio ventilation. And you're using APRV as a surrogate for that. Well, I couldn't that, set that, that up right? better if I had paid you. So, um, <laughs> and I really appreciate it's not, that. It's not because you can put you can put someone inverse ratio ventilation on assist control. 
Yes, you can. And you don't have to why, go to HRV to go inverse ratio ventilation. The advantage uh, of it is that they can spontaneously breathe while you have them inverse. So it's not the mode of ventilation that's improving the oxygenation. It's that you are prolonging the I-to-E ratio. Um, in, in part, yes, but it's not truly inverse because they breathe throughout. It's not fixed. Gas goes in and out through that entire five, six, seven, eight second period of high pressure. And so you actually have constant gas exchange. They may be small volumes, maybe 50 or 75 or occasionally 200 mLs until you get to that release. So they are constantly breathing throughout that. And as the pressure goes down, because you can generally, once you recruit them, lower that pressure, they get much bigger volumes. So they're not at all inverse. They're just breathing at a much higher pressure without having fixed ventilation. So, but they are inverse because the I time is long and the E time is short. Um, no, I, I, but the P, I the P high, they, the T high. Because if they're breathing the within, high, the high it's not fixed short. ID ratio ventilation. That? If you paralyze them, that's exactly what you get, and you are 100% correct. Deeply sedate them, you've got it nailed. But not the difference the, is that they get to breathe during those periods of T high and P high. Yeah, okay. they do. And that's actually so it's not part the, of the mode benefit. of ventilation. It's, it's the fact that you're providing longer time and inspiration, increased mean airway pressure. That's really the benefit. Yes, I agree with you. Okay. Uh, my approach would be a little bit different. Um, I, I think Lou's very first point was the most important, is that you need to rule out other things first. So have you identified and treated the abdominal problem? And have you identified and treated any issues with endotracheal tube obstruction, tubing obstruction, ventilator malfunction, any of those things to make sure that this is really truly a pulmonary problem? The first thing I generally will do is take them off the ventilator on 100% O2 and have the respiratory therapist bag them up and see if they can if they improve from that sort of oxygenation. Make sure you have a chest x-ray recently, no, no pneumothorax and so on. And then if you decided, yeah, it's, it's an intrinsic pulmonary alveolar problem, we will generally follow our ARDS uh, protocol, which is a titration of PEEP and FiO2, to tolerate a lower oxygen saturation, right? We all like 100%, but the reality is in these patients, 100% is not realistic or, or would be difficult to get to. So we're going to tolerate a lower, uh, FI, I mean, a lower oxygen saturation in the 88 to 92% range and then titrate, have the, the therapist titrate the PEEP and the FiO2 to do a couple of things. Still low, low tidal volume ventilation, so lung protective strategy, and to you know, minimize plateau pressure and maximize PEEP. So we have our, our algorithm, we have a low PEEP algorithm and a high PEEP algorithm, um, and really kind of try to minimize that plateau pressure while maximizing the PEEP and then try to improve that oxygenation through a, in a protocolized fashion rather than have the individual changing a little bit of PEEP, a little bit of FiO2, but I would not change the mode of ventilation right off the bat. So just to clarify, um, Carlos, you, you would be on what kind of a mode? You'd be on an AC-cycled mode, and then you would just keep working the PEEP up according to your Yeah, you know, it's mode? funny. As many of ICUs I've practiced in, the mode of ventilation at, at, uh, is completely driven by ICU culture. Some ICUs have been completely volume control, uh, AC, others volume control, SINV, others purely pressure control, others APRV. It's, a, it's an ICU culture, and the ICU, my ICU's culture is to use uh, assist control with volume, volume ventilation. And so I would stay on that mode and try to titrate the PEEP and the FiO2, tolerating a lower oxygen saturation. What, so, and both of you, please feel free to jump in, but what's the upper limit of PEEP? Let's say you're doing AC and you're following your, your ICU protocol, and you're now at a PEEP of 20, and the patient is still uh, with only marginal improvements maybe and still very hypoxic. 
at what point do you feel like, because I'm hearing you saying that the mode itself doesn't matter so much. So is there a peep at which you say, oh, you know what, this is way too much peep at this vent setting or this type of uh, – uh, I think in the, right, you said it, in the 20 to 24 range, I think there you failed that and you need to move on to something else. Okay, all right. Yeah, is, I will um, agree with Carlos. He's uh, he's very nicely articulated uh, key features of this that, that address mean airway pressure, which is your oxygenation determinant, uh, key features of avoiding ventilator-induced lung injury, like limitations of plateau pressure. And I will absolutely agree with, with him that uh, once you've hit 20 to 24, you've maximized the, the PEEP if you're in an AC volume cycle uh, method of management. So, so then do you change the mode? Yeah, exactly. What would you, what, what then, um, it, let's say you did hit 24, Carlos. What's next for you? We have moved uh, to proning those. Well, I would no, actually, first I would probably try to, uh, neuromuscular clay, to try to paralyze the patient to make sure there's no intrinsic patient problems that are driving your inability to oxygenate that patient. So I would try neuromuscular blockade. And then if we still have no improvement in the oxygenation, the next thing we would do is prone. Okay. All right. Let me, um, if I could just hold, that's, that's a great segue to proning, but let me just hold off for one second because I wanted to go back to Lou real quick and say, Lou, you know the APRV, do you see it as a rescue maneuver or do you see it sort of just, let's start it early on before we even get to PEEP of 15, 20 and progressively uh, increasing PEEPs? So the answer is yes, and it really does depend on your ICU culture and with what you are comfortable. And so if if you are uh, most comfortable using AC volume cycled, and you will maximize that until uh, you've gotten to your upper limits within your protocolized approach. It's a it's a rescue mode then. Uh, if you're really comfy with it, and you uh, will use it for other kinds of patients, it can be your primary go-to mode. So there isn't a wrong way to do it. It just has to be the way that fits with what your institution can support what your respiratory therapist uh, will be able to do with you, who do you have in-house that can or can't troubleshoot things, uh, that does impact uh, some decision-making in terms of how you manage things if you are at a place that doesn't have residents and fellows that are in-house attending. So those, those things are important. For me, I will use it in both fashions depending upon which hospital in our system I'm practicing in. So if it's over at Penn, uh, we'll use it just from the start. If I'm at the VA, where I have fewer resources, I tend to use it as a rescue mode. Hey, so okay. Lou, this is Matt Martin. Know, and and just a quick technical question. So you're switching your patient to APRV. Tell me how you set your P high, and, and, and do you always have your P low at zero? Ah. <laughs> in, in two sentences or less. <laughs> I will generally take my P high, as my plateau pressure on AC volume cycled. There are other ways to do it, but that seems to work reasonably well. Uh, if I am the one managing it, I put my, my T low, uh, my P low rather, at zero. Uh, if uh, I'm going to be handing this off in the morning to someone else, they tend to be a little bit uncomfortable with that, and I'll add a couple of centimeters of water pressure, and it makes everyone feel better about it. What's your Great, rationale thanks. for keeping it? What's your rationale for doing PLO at zero? Uh, I don't find that I have, that there's a a benefit when I am initially recruiting someone as I'm switching them to having a PLO. There is a benefit when I'm weaning them, and this becomes a much more European approach to APRV, which is then termed bilevel, 
where they truly have enough time to breathe at two different pressures. But when I'm when I'm trying to limit the the total peak for the patient, uh, I will make sure that the difference between their peak and the release uh, is not um, confused by having a, a P low, so that I need a higher P high. So if I'm looking okay. for a delta of 25, I'd rather have 25 over zero than 27 over two. Yeah, and, and but let me add to that. I think, and I don't know if you agree. Well, I mean, one of the issues I've seen is people confusing P low with PEEP. And, and they see a P low of zero and say, oh, my God, they're in zero of PEEP. And that is not zero of PEEP because they're, they're almost never fully exhaling. I mean, is that, is that, would you agree with that, Lou? I would indeed agree with that. Now, we're so but you can measure that, too, though, right? You can measure that, that auto-peep. You can measure it. So you should know the P low is zero, but your auto-peep is whatever it turns out being. Yeah, exactly. But I see a lot, a lot of people turning up to five just because they, they think it's PEEP. Well, I think when you have that set at 30 over zero, you need to look and see what the patient is, what auto-PEEP is being generated by the ventilator so you'll have an idea of what PEEP you're providing the patient by that mode. Absolutely. All right, so let's let's move on to proning, and let, let me start by taking a poll, including the moderators, of just yes or no if you do proning. Uh, Matt, do you prone? Uh, yes, after after they've failed, you know, going to a different vent mode, and I'd probably try paralytics first and then proning. Okay, so, and Car- Carlos already said um, his method, which is um, paralytics as well, and then proning. How about you, Lou? Do you prone? I do prone, and I will prone before I use paralytics. I have... Uh, rarely use paralytics in the last 15 years. Okay, and then Dave, are you there? Do you guys yeah. prone? Uh, I do prone, and I'm an early proner. I think uh, part of the problem with the evidence about proning is it, if you wait until it's a rescue maneuver, then it's not going to do as well, and I've had good success with early proning. Okay, great. That's a that's a perfect segue. You know, um, everybody's familiar with the New England Journal in 2013 article as part of the Postivo um, study group um, um, looking at proning and, and specifically really early proning and for prolonged periods of time. So, Carlos, since you um, originally did a segue to the proning, um, you know, maybe let's talk about how you do it, what the benefits are, um, what's your practice with proning. So, I think I think um, someone alluded to earlier. If it's gonna, it needs to be early in, in the decision in the decision tree. So, if you've Exhausted your PEEP and your neuromuscular cave doesn't work, then move into proning. We use the uh, the beds that are proning, so we don't do it manually, though it can be done manually depending on your ICU and your resources without any problem. The one thing that has changed on the New England Journal study that Proceva studied for us was the length of time somebody is prone. We used to prone for four hours prone, one hour supine, and this study had 16-hour prone period for, during the day. So we've now moved to 16-hour proning periods, um, so the, the length of time is significant. And you think about it sort of... If you think about the west zones of the lung and what's being ventilated, what's being perfused, you're changing your west zones of the lung by taking the patient from supine to prone, and you're now um, perfusing aerated parts and aerated uh, perfused parts of the lung and improving your shun, improving your oxygenation, um, as well as maybe getting the you know the heart out of the mediastinum or, or the, the way things are, are, are laying in the in the mediastinum in the chest. Um, but it really it depends. This is a very again a very cultural thing on your ICU. You know, have you always prone people manually? Have you always prone people with a bed? Because those are two very different um, techniques to getting the patient in a safe prone position. And that is something that you'll need to work with your ICU nurses, your staff, your respiratory therapists to see what works best for you from a cost and safety standpoint. All right. And now, Lou, Lou you also mentioned, everybody sort of mentioned or using it early on. But I'm actually hearing you guys saying that you would still try 
various modes before you still see proning as a as a rescue maneuver are you using it um and what do you mean by early and are you using it basic basically as a rescue maneuver so uh, i am using it more as a rescue maneuver early for me is i tried ac volume cycled i did something else whatever that something else may be commonly aprv for me and if i haven't made significant headway within four hours of changing i will start proning them then However, I do have a bifurcated pathway. And for me, the bifurcation is their chest geometry. Uh, I have been very underwhelmed with the benefit of proning in people that have more ovoid chests and have been singularly pleased with proning in the person that has a more triangular chest geometry. So that uh, for the person that has a lot of posterior pulmonary parenchyma, when you make that the... uh, the anterior parenchyma, you can get a lot of benefit. And then, just like Carlos has said, uh, we've gone to doing this for 16 hours. Uh, we were in the 6 and 1 motif rather than 4 and 1, but 16 seems to be the spot for those who are going to benefit. You know, back to the early thing, though. I mean, the study, the, the New England Journal study, still they, were, they had a 12 to 24-hour period of, of um, stabilization. So, I mean, that, you're, you're not talking about switching someone to proning within an hour of trying... PEEP or or paralysis or APRV, you still have some time. I think somebody. I think it's still reasonable to aggressively work that patient up and treat that patient with sta- more standard modes of ventilation and oxygenation before going to proning. But you just don't want to wait a week later um, and then try to prone at that point. That's not going to work. So, so from a, speaking of culturally, from an ICU, there's a difference between medical ICU patients and surgical ICU patients. And I would say that at our at our institution, the medical intensivists are far far quicker to prone a patient. And one of the things that people talk about is there's a it makes nursing care very very difficult to prone somebody 16 hours. So how do you guys handle that at your institution? Uh, well, the nurses are really slick at this. They will sort of auto regulate if they need two people for that one person or more. Uh, they'll change what their staffing happens to be for the patient around us. They will take care of it all on their own. And then as the needs become less, as you go from day one to day two to day four, whatever it happens to be, they'll auto-regulate. So we've we've allowed them the cultural practice ownership, and they simply provide what is needed for the patient. In our place, it's going to be for sure a one-to-one Situation and they get a lot of support during the when the patient flips from prone to supine or the other way around. Um, but again, it, it's a place that you prone a lot. You're gonna you're gonna have more acceptance and comfort at the nursing level than a place you don't prone very often. All of a sudden on Tuesday you decide to prone. That's gonna cause a lot of anxiety among your among your staff. Yeah, and I think the the proning beds definitely change that paradigm too. I mean, manually manual proning is a much bigger nursing issue than now with the beds that can do it for you. Yeah. Does anyone have I think from a safety standpoint too it's much easier to get the patient supine in a, in a rapidly if you need to with the bed. Does anybody have experience with the the beds that don't completely prone but but um rotate to um pass 90 degrees on one side and then sort of it's like a continuous turning almost like a rotisserie chicken does anybody have experience with that? No. We uh, we did that for a little while, uh, not at Penn, but at other institutions where I was, and it was um, uh, perceived much like shake and bake therapy because there was a percussion vibration module that that went along with it, 
and it did uh, two really good things. One was it made a lot of noise, and two is it created a lot of shear injury for the patients that were uh, were supine that were a little bit on the moist side. So I'm not a big fan. Yeah, we we used that for a while. The other thing we noticed is if they were not heavily sedated, that mode would really freak them out. Right. <laughs> when they would yeah. get up to 90 degrees, it would induce a lot of anxiety. Um, let's move on. So um, just out of curiosity, does anybody use have any experience with high frequency? Oh, yeah. HO? Okay. <laughs> let's talk about high frequency. Um, and uh, so uh, was it Lou that said, oh, yeah? That, yep, that was me. Okay. So we, we did that a lot during residency, did that a lot early in my career, and uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, we don't do that anymore. Uh, it was absolutely fabulous to teach at the bedside. The physiology was fascinating. Fellows would love learning about it, and you were trapped. If you had to operate on the patient, take them to CAT scan, bronc them, it was an absolute disaster. And now with the wide variety of trials showing that this doesn't really help you, uh, at least in adults, uh, we don't do that anymore. And I'm very happy about that. Well, Lou, can you, can you clarify? Because there, there's, you know, many different flavors now of high frequency. You know, there's jet ventilation, there's high frequency oscillatory, there's the high frequency percussive. So, so what was your experience with? Uh, both with jet and oscillation. Okay. And uh, and so the main the uh, Carlos, did you have any experience with uh, oscillation or any of the high frequency modes? Yeah, my previous institution where Matt and I were together, we had high frequency percussive ventilation. But I agree with Lou. I'm glad it's the nail. I think the nail was in the coffin when the two the two randomized trials came out in the same issue of New England Journal of Medicine. Um, I think it was 2013, both showing no benefit, possible harm. And I think I sort of put put the rest the uh, high frequency ventilation in adults. For ARDS again, I have no experience with kids, and I'm, and I'm aware that that literature is going to be better for kids. But for adults, I don't think there's any role anymore. Okay, um, I'm going to start another controversial topic, which is steroids and the use of <laughs> ARDS. Controversial uh, at all? Okay. Uh, why, then why don't you go ahead and start, Carlos? What's your view on it? And uh, don't use it at all for it. Don't use it. No, I, I think there's no controversy that late steroids are bad. So after 14 days, you're not going to want to use steroids at all. That's bad. Early steroids, I think there's mixed uh, evidence, and in my mind, there's there's mixed evidence. There's no there's no clear benefit, and there's potential harm, or there's real harm from steroids. So I don't have them at all in my practice. Ditto. Carlo nailed it. See, you should go on the no, coffin with just the high frequency stuff. <laughs> well, that wasn't controversial at all. <laughs> No, but I mean, the, when you talk to your pulmonary colleagues, there's a, a a lot of interest in those that are potentially um, more likely to make fibrotic lungs as opposed to p- compliant lungs. I don't know that we know how to sort those out. The quest for the holy grail of uh, some montage of biomarkers that will tell you this is the patient that needs steroids so they don't end up with fibrosis a month down the road or six months down the road. We don't know how to pick that patient out, and the the real harm that accrues for steroids, I think, truly negates it in our practice. There may be a unique subset in the pulmonary critical care world that could benefit, but I don't think we know how to find that patient with any degree of reliability. 
So is it possible is it possible that the efficacy of steroids is a function of when you started it? I mean, I know we have this big window of 14 days or or quote unquote sooner, but um it, do you guys think that it's possible that that maybe you should use it very very early on or just absolutely no steroids period? I just think we have so many things available now that we know, we by the literature we would say we know improve oxygenation and mortality. That I don't know why we would do something that's to this date, questionable at best. I, see. I just don't see any role for that. Okay. All right. Um, how about inhale nitric oxide? Oh, boy, you can make your numbers look nice, but we've, we've demonstrated that that doesn't change your outcome. But it looks really fascinating, and the family sure you're doing all kinds of really cool stuff when you have the little box at the bedside. Many of them have a very pretty blue light uh, in, as the backlight, so that's nice at night. But... Um, Unless you have someone that has a short-term perturbation in their pulmonary pressures that could be inhaled nitric oxide responsive, it's not a routine part of my armamentarium. Yeah, I agree. Improves oxygenation, doesn't improve mortality, um, and I think it's reserved for pulmonary hypertension as your primary problem, not ARDS as your primary problem. Pulmonary hypertension is the problem, then I think... The use of nitric oxide until you get that sorted out is reasonable, but for ARDS, it's not part of my algorithm. And, and, but, and are you, let me ask another a question then to both of you. So we've said a couple times doesn't improve mortality, um, but you know there have been a couple interesting papers that that have made the point that that's probably a lousy endpoint for us to be using now for ARDS. The overall mortality has gone down. There's some studies that show there's there's actually not much added mortality in addition to whatever else they have going on in the ICU, but there's a lot of morbidity, and, and, that, and, and the mortality is lower in surgical and trauma patients who get ARDS than medical patients. So, so maybe that's not a good endpoint we should use. And when we say this didn't improve mortality, well, well, maybe we should be looking at different measures and more important things like vent-free days, you know, time to wean from ventilator, hospital length of stay, et cetera. Yeah, but low time of ventilation improved mortality. Paralysis uh, randomized trial improved mortality. Proning randomized trial improved mortality. So there are interventions that have improved mortality in ARDS. Now your point about you know actually you've written on this trauma patients mortality has is low and hasn't really changed that much. So I agree with that. But to me, nitric oxide is a complicating intervention that complicates other things. Um, you know, the, just the care of the patient is complicated by it, and it's going to improve oxygenation. But is that is that really what we're trying to do? Is just improve oxygenation? Is that to me that's not really a good endpoint either. Well, but if you improve vent-free days, if you improve hospital length of stay, ICU length of stay, and and just just play devil's advocate, low tidal volume ventilation. When you look at trauma patients, actually did not improve mortality in the ARGENET trial. Yeah. But I'm not familiar with anything that nitric oxide improves vent-free days or length of stay. Maybe you have that. Oh, no, I, I agree with that. Okay. Yes. See, all the other things we've talked about hew to a standard, whether it's the standard of avoiding ventilator-induced lung injury uh, or recruiting available lung in a safe fashion or it is uh, avoiding impedance of uh, chest wall resistance to effective ventilation, we have things that, that meet that as a standard. Uh, none of our standards say you have to have a better PO2 if the PO2 you have is okay. And so inhaled nitric oxide gets you a better PO2 than perhaps what you needed, especially if you do what, what Klaus has suggested, which is uh, have a, a more conservative oxygenation target. 
And then the balance, the weight, uh, staggeringly so for inhaled nitric oxide, uh, becomes uh, danger more than improvement in an outcome that is meaningful to the patient and their family or even the system. That, actually, that, that's a great point, and I wanted to ask both of you, are you what are you titrating to in terms of oxygenation? Are you looking at it just a pulse ox and saying 88% is enough, or are you looking at the PF ratio? What, what are you titrating to? I use PDF ratio just for the initial diagnostic um, part of it, and then the titration is to oxygen saturation of 80, above 88%. Agreed. All right, and let's let's talk about neuromuscular blockade then. It sounds like um, there's a place for it. Carlos, you mentioned it that you use it. Um, how do you use it? Uh, how long do you use it? Uh, what 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 are the goals of neuromuscular blockade? So um, I use it if if my if the PEEP, our ARDS protocol our PEEP, I thought two titration is not working uh, within a matter of probably four to six hours. If, if that's not working, we're going to um, put them on a neuromuscular blockade going to get a baseline train of force so we know how much um, is needed to get a twitch in that patient and then um, uh, use a, the cisatricurium or atricurium to uh, paralyze the patient down to a one out of four twitches to make sure you don't put them into zero out of four and then load them with a bunch of extra paralytics. So one out of four twitches. Often we use a BIS monitor to make sure the patient's adequately sedated No, no, without great data for that. But just to make sure we're not have a paralyzed patient who's awake under there, we'll use the BIS monitor to titrate sedation. And then generally, you know, the the, the study that looked at that um, again a, a few years ago again had 48 hours of, of neuromuscular blockade, and that will usually be my starting point. But I, I have to admit, I, I often will go past 48 hours if I'm making good progress on oxygenation. I may keep them uh, paralyzed for longer than 48 hours. Hopefully not too long, but maybe three days, four days. Uh, how about you, Lou? Do you use paralytics, and, and sort of what's your practice paradigm there? So, so I really don't. Um, I fully recognize the data that's been published, and I recognize the, the improvement in outcome that's been documented, but I can't help but feel as if this is a backslide. Uh, during training, we would routinely neuromuscularly block people. Sometimes we use the BIS. Uh, then it became standard practice to use the BIS to avoid exactly the problem that's been identified, and we would have them neuromuscularly blocked as, uh, in this circumstance for ARDS management as a means of helping match our ability to deliver O2 with what their perceived O2 demand happened to be. Well, that didn't work really well. We've decided we didn't really need to do that. And instead, we sedated people. And as we were able to use propofol and then later dexmedetomidine in combination with fentanyl for analgesia, uh, really stopped neuromuscularly blocking patients. So at the point where neuromuscular blockade would be advocated by some, that I would most certainly have changed my mode and not neuromuscularly block them. Uh, I think we have uh, ample prior evidence that neuromuscular blockade has some impact I'm not sure exactly what because it's not that precise, but some impact on uh, post-ICU weakness. And there's data both mechanistically at the myoneural junction as well as at the muscle fascicles that that, that is the case. There's some overlap with steroids, overlap with uh, some antibiotics. And if I don't need to use it, then I will opt not to. It, uh, I'm not saying that it's wrong to.
two do it. This is a perspective of how are you going to achieve safe ventilation and ideal CO2 clearance and oxygenation for your patient. There's lots of ways to do it. There's lots of recipes. Uh, that's just not mine. And, Carlos, just to clarify for the audience, but you're not suggesting using neuromuscular blockade early on. You, you, earlier you said, well, we're already at peak of 20, 24. I'm about to prone this patient. Let me try neuromuscular blockade. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I did. that changes first, then neuromuscular blockade, and then proning. Many ways to do all this. Yeah, hey, hey, uh, this is Matt Martin again. So question for both of you or, or scenario. So at, at the level one that I work at in Portland, the, our algorithm would be, so the patient who's failing, patient who's failing all of that, you paralyzed them, you proned them, you've maxed out your vent, and they are still hypoxic. Uh, my question would be, what's your next move? And, and ours, we talked about high frequency. There, we, we would still go, we would go to high frequency percussive, and, and that will oxygenate almost anybody. Uh, but we use that if they, if they're failing that as a bridge to ECMO. And for example, with H1N1 patients we've seen who, who will do exactly that. So. How hypoxic are you talking about? Well, I mean, you, you cannot, so SAT, SATs of 80, PO2 of 30 or 40. So just the, the, the patient who's, failing everything you've done. And I'm just telling you, that's our approach and just wondering what, what you two would do in that scenario because it's either do something next or, you know, let the patient die. I, I would, we don't do ECMO in my place, and that would be the patient you presented would be somebody to be transferred for ECMO. How, that being said, I, I don't feel like you mentioned H1N1, and we, I don't take care of H1N1 patients in my practice, but I don't, I don't feel like surgical slash trauma patients with ARDS get to that point very often that you described. I feel that that's more of a medical ICU H1N1 phenomenon. And I, I can't remember the last time I transferred a patient to ECMO due to inability to oxygenate from ARDS. Uh, we would definitely uh, put that patient on ECMO. Uh, I think that some of what you get in terms of your patient population is regionally specific. So if you have a lot of direct lung injury as opposed to indirect, uh, maybe you use ECMO a little bit more. Uh, we certainly have uh, done so in conjunction with our cardiothoracic colleagues. We're in the process of standing up uh, our own piece of that, if you will, with, with some new recruits. But it, uh, there is a regionality to this in terms of the, the patient spectrum that you see. We don't take care of H1N1 either. And I'm happy about that. I had a question about um, institutions that want to follow ARDSNET, particularly volume standard or uh, volume-based protocols. Um, if you're not using a volume cycle or a volume mode, how are you supposed to still do the sort of low volume and, and how are you supposed to follow the ARDSNET protocol? <laughs> well, you can do well, it you can do do the, over the ARDSNET protocol with pressure ventilation as well. Yeah. You just you have to set the pressure with a, instead of setting the volume, you set the pressure to get a target volume that you want. So you can still do the same thing, whether you're volume ventilating or pressure ventilating. It doesn't matter. Yeah, there's some closed-loop systems that will help you to do that that are, uh, are already marketed. So you can do that all with pressure. And so it's uh, kind of like pressure-regulated volume guarantee, but you, you, know, you figure out what their compliance is and what you need to get them there, and then the machine will adjust based upon... Uh, what their individual dynamics are. So, yeah, you can deal with pressure. Okay, fantastic. Uh, any parting words? We're going to wrap up now. Any um, any parting words for our audience, sort of tidbits, um, take-home messages? Uh, let's start with Carlos. 
I think I'm going to reiterate something that Lou said earlier. There's a lot of different ways to do this, and there's not necessarily any right or wrong answer. Um, but I think you need to standardize as much as you can what you do at your institution with the buy-in of the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the intensivists, so you're all singing off the same sheet of music on a regular basis and decrease the variability at your specific institution. So Carlos's point is, is great. I would add one other piece to it, and that is that in large part, we've been somewhat disenfranchised from manipulating the ventilator. I think it's very important that you spend time with your respiratory therapist so that you understand exactly how to change that vent. How do you set your alarm limits? How to interrogate it? How do you get to the waveforms or the log on it so that you understand what's really happened? And in an emergency, you can do what the patient needs you to do and do it safely. And we are, we are often uh, admonished uh, about touching any ventilator setting because, let's face it, we're not always very good at documenting exactly what we did. But to the extent that you can become sufficiently expert that you could set that up soup to nuts, it's really helpful for the patients when you're trying to fine-tune their ventilator regardless of what mode or which approach you use. So there's an opportunity to partner with your respiratory therapist and have them view you as someone that could do it in conjunction with them quite uh, quite expertly. Those are those are very helpful closing remarks. And um, gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us in the audience. Um, I want to thank again Dr. Carlos Brown and Dr. Lou Kaplan for this engaging conversation about AR, uh, modern management at ARDS and these challenging scenarios. Um, and uh, we hope you join us in our next trauma cast. Thanks again, guys. Thanks so much. Thank for you very much. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.